So as we're more or less winding down the epistle to the Hebrews here, it's, it's really difficult in, in one sense to you know, kind of get a feel for, for how much uh, we ought to take you know, each, each time that we come together. So uh, obviously we could go through much more quickly. Uh, we could also possibly go through much more slowly. But you know, I'm just trying to get a sense of the, the things that the Lord wants to say to us each, each Sunday when we gather. So I just decided today that we would look at these um, few verses here, verses 14 uh, through 17. But of course, we have, to, we have to see them in their context because you know, it, it's just a continuation of what um, the author is communicating to those uh, that have been experiencing the chastening of the Lord or, or this discipline that God has been uh, exercising toward them. So uh, again, let me remind you of the context. Uh, it was through neglect of their faith and hardness of heart that these Hebrew believers had become crippled spiritually. This is really kind of the state that they're in. They're kind of in a crippled state. They're not uh, progressing. They're not advancing. They're not maturing. They're, they're kind of just stuck and um, not, not only stuck and stagnating, but, but to some degree, they're drifting back as well. And so as a result of that, they have also come under the chastening of the Lord. And that's the immediate context. And so we uh, read those two verses that connected that there. And so the writer is calling them to respond to the correction the Lord has laid on them so they can be healed. Uh, not only to resume the progress to maturity the Lord has planned for them, but ultimately to receive the promise of life in the age to come. They, they seemingly have just you know, taken their eyes off of eternity. They've taken their eyes off of the bigger picture, and they've, they've just become very uh, self-centered and um, focused on the moment and the, the discomfort of the moment. And so they're, they're, they're being tempted to seek out their own comfort. They're being tempted to embrace, once again, uh, the material, the things that they could see, rather than looking by faith to the things that they could not see. And so it's just a, a one warning after another to not let that happen to them. And so as we pick up, having addressed the issue of chastening, there in verse 12, he says, therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. And now in verse 14 through 17, he is basically giving them steps toward doing that. So what we have here in these verses really is the path to spiritual healing. That's the, the title that I've given to the message today, the path to spiritual healing. They were, like I said, 
crippled spiritually. So how are they going to be restored? How are uh, they going to come through and come out the other side uh, strengthened? It's through now applying the things that he writes for them in these next few verses. So pursue peace with all and holiness without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, for you know that after when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. So if they're going to move forward, if they're going to come out of this stagnant state, if they're going to uh, be prevented, this is a preventative measure, if they're going to be prevented from uh, drifting further away, then they're going to have to take heed to the counsel that he's giving here, and it begins with the word pursuit. They are to pursue. And this is really uh, kind of the, the gist of their problem. They had stopped pursuing the things that would make for spiritual progress and maturity and, and for their uh, spiritual strength. They had, they had stopped pursuing those things. They had left off of those things. So he's calling them now to go back to a pursuit of these things. And you know, this is a danger that all of us live with. We all live with the danger of losing our passion for the things of the Spirit. We all live with the danger of settling into complacency, of settling into uh, a place of comfort. We all live with the danger of being sucked back into the, the system of the world. And the only way to resist that is to pursue the things of the Spirit. So we've got to be actively pursuing the things of the Spirit. If not, we're going to be just drifting with the tide back into the things of the flesh, back into the things of the material world, back into the things that are going to lead us ultimately out of the favor of God. And so that was the issue with them, and it's also a, a warning for us. So Let's, let's look at each one of these things, the pursuit of peace and holiness and these other things that he mentions here. And obviously, the things that he mentions here had uh, relation to them particularly. So, uh, you know, he, he's not just throwing out sort of random issues, but there were obviously... Uh, divisions among them. So he says to pursue peace. There was obviously uh, a lack of holiness. So he says to pursue holiness. There was still the, the uh, unawareness on their part of their precarious spiritual condition. And so he tells them to watch that uh, no one falls short of the grace of God. There were obviously issues, issues that stem from bitterness and were causing trouble and defilement to others. There was evidently sexual immorality. There was fornication because he mentions it here. And then there was that issue of 
the profane person, and he uses Esau as the example. So let's uh, just look at each one of these quickly, and in the end, we're going to come back around, and we're going to focus on what I think is the most important point that he makes here, and that is the pursuit of holiness. But let's just touch on each one of these real quickly. So pursue peace with all. You know, anytime you have a situation where people are still going through the motions of religion, but are in their heart disconnected from God, you're going to have strife and division and contention among people. That's just the nature of uh, our, our hearts. Our hearts are full of that kind of stuff. And so... If you have a, a church or a community of people, or if you have you know, numbers of individuals in your midst who are causing division and strife and being contentious, then here's what you can know. You can know that in their hearts, these people are disengaged from God, even though outwardly they might not necessarily appeared to be in the sense that they might hold some sort of spiritual position in the church. They might hold some sort of office. They might be looked to as somebody of uh, spiritual importance, maybe because they've been in a certain place for a long time, or they, you know, they maybe have a reputation from the past of being a, a godly person. But if they're causing division, then whatever their reputation might be, and whatever they, they might have uh, been in the past as far as maybe some kind of a spiritual leader, if that is happening, then that is indicative of a problem in the heart that needs to be dealt with. And so he starts with the pursuit of peace with all, showing them that they needed to get right with God and getting right with God would manifest itself by getting right with one another. So in this first verse here that we're looking at, verse 14, he has kind of the two relationships included here. He has the horizontal, which is our relationships with people, and then he has pursue holiness, which is our relationship with God. And if we're at odds with people, then it shows that we're not right with God. If we're right with God, then we're going to also at least as much as is possible from our part, we're going to be uh, living at peace with people. Now, we can't force people to be at peace with us. That's why Paul, in writing to the Romans, he says, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all people. So we're to do our part. We can't control what somebody else does, but we're to do our part. And our part is, as he says here, to pursue peace. And then secondly, we are to pursue holiness. Now, like I said, I want to come back to this in a few minutes, and I want to focus on this. But when we're talking about holiness here, it's important to recognize that holiness is not disconnected from God, and that seems like, why, did, why did, do you even need to say that? Well, because oftentimes, all throughout the history of God's people, there has been a disconnect between holiness and God. Case in point, the Pharisees. The Pharisees seemed to outwardly be the most holy people there were, but they were completely disconnected from God. They were so disconnected from God that when God came and was right there in their presence... 
They didn't recognize him. Not only did they not recognize him, they actually resisted him. So they appeared to be holy, but yet they were living in total and complete rebellion to God. So holiness is connected to God. And so when the author says that we're to pursue holiness, he's not talking about the pursuit of uh, a particular moral standard or a, a, a particular moral way of living. He's basically talking about the necessity to pursue God, which then will result in a particular moral standard that we live by, because God does have a moral standard by which we live. So we're to pursue peace and holiness. And then he says that we are to look carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. So here, once again, he's calling us to look out for each other. Remember back in the 10th chapter, he said something similar. He warned against uh, forsaking the assembling of ourselves together like some people do. He said, no, we're not to do that, but we're to gather together. We're to, do, uh, we're to do that as we see the day approaching, and we're to do it with the objective of exhorting one another. And so here, once again, we are to be looking out for each other, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. And this idea of falling short of the grace of God, this is the, the thing that he's been talking about all the way through the letter. That in the end, they would miss out on the fullness of salvation that God intended for them. That in the end, they would have gone through religious rituals, but never actually connected with God himself. And, and once again, this is a bigger problem than we sometimes realize. The church, even today, is full of people that would, could literally be said to have come short of, of the grace of God because they're religious, they're part of the church, but they don't have the actual relationship with the Lord. This is a huge problem. And it's not uh, limited to you know, just certain maybe liberal denominations or, or churches that are kind of, uh, you know, maybe uh, they're orthodox in their, um, in their uh, statement of faith, but nevertheless, you know, in, their, in their practice, they're not really connecting with the Lord. It, it, you have it there, but you, you can even have it in uh, our midst as well. You know, we, we can come to a place where, uh, you know, church is just a, a place that you come to on a certain day of the week, Sunday, primarily. And you're here to do your religious duty, so to speak. And there's certain components of that that you enjoy and you walk away and you feel good, but, you, but you've never really connected with Jesus himself and experienced his forgiveness and that renewal, uh, that, that uh, rebirth of the spirit. I mean, that, that's all possible. And so we want to be on our guard that that is not the case and we want to look out for one another that that doesn't happen. 
And then from there, he moves on and he says, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Now, again, apparently there was this problem amongst them. There were people that were bitter. They were maybe bitter toward each other. Uh, They were uh, probably, ultimately, bitter toward God. Because, after all, things were not working out the way they had thought. They accepted Jesus. They believed he was the Messiah. They thought that immediately he was going to set up the kingdom. And instead of that happening, and them coming into places of authority and rule over the rest of the nation, instead of that, they were being ostracized. They were being persecuted. They were uh, being uh, slighted and slandered. And so, you know, they could have said, well, you know, God, what, what's going on here? We didn't sign up for this. This isn't what you promised us. This isn't what we thought that we were uh, getting into when we put our faith and trust in you. And now we're, we're upset. You know, there are more people that are angry with God than you can even imagine. And I would venture to say you could find thousands of people in this county alone who would be in this category of having become bitter because they've been in some way disappointed. They had some sort of an expectation that God didn't come through uh, for them on, and now they're, they're angry with God, they're bitter, and they're troubled, and everywhere they go, that just spills out, and it, it defiles people all around. You know, some of the, the most um, ardent atheists today, you know what they will often say? They will often say, well, you know, I used to be a Christian. And they will talk about the uh, disappointment that they had in uh, the Christian faith and how, you know, there couldn't be a God because, you know, things didn't work out. And there are a number of, of atheists who actually have that sort of a claim, that sort of a background. And when you hear them talk about the God that doesn't exist, boy, I don't know how you could get so worked up about a God who doesn't exist, but they're able to do it. Um, it's, it's that bitterness, really, that's happening in the hearts. You know, this this is actually probably uh, a teaching all of its own uh, that we could do because it's such a prevalent issue, the issue of bitterness. And bitterness sets in when disappointment is there or when uh, there's been a wrong and there's been an unwillingness to forgive. You know, it can, all different kinds of things can lead to bitterness, but bitterness always leads to troubling the individual and defiling those who come into contact with the individual. I talked to a lady, just mentioned to me after the last service, she said, boy, everything you were saying about bitterness, she said, she said, my mother was the most bitter person, and she said it destroyed her. It destroyed her own life physically and emotionally, and it destroyed, uh, defiled the family around her. And, and that story's been told um, a million times over. You know, recently I updated a book that I'd written several years ago on the subject of spiritual warfare. And as I was updating the book, I was you know, expanding some chapters and adding a few things and then addressing a couple of things a bit further on in the book. And... I was wanting to do it as quick as I could to just, you know, get it done, to get it back into print. And I, 
I kept sensing from the Lord that I needed to include a chapter on bitterness and unforgiveness as being one of the ways that that Satan, one of the main ways that Satan gets a foothold in our lives. And quite frankly, I didn't want to do it because I, I didn't want to take the time. And yet, in the end, I felt really compelled by the Lord, you know, write this chapter because this is one of Satan's most effective tools in bringing people down, getting them entrenched in unforgiveness and bitterness. Paul tells us that to to not forgive, remember he says, be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Paul also says that uh, uh, in regard to forgiveness, he says we need to forgive lest Satan take advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. And let me tell you, the longer I go in ministry, the more I've seen this, this issue of unforgiveness leading to bitterness, leading to personal trouble and defilement of others, the more I've seen that happen uh, as, as time has gone on. There was a time in my life as a young pastor when I didn't even get what it was to be bitter toward God. When people would tell me, well, I'm angry with God, I would think that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Seriously. But you know, there came a point through living life and through going through my own struggles and experiences, I, there came a point where I began to realize, oh, okay, I, I can see this now. I see how bitterness can set in. You know, sometimes what happens, and I've seen this happen many times, is you see an injustice take place and you expect it to be dealt with. And because it's not dealt with in the way or the time frame that you expect it to be dealt with, you, you get angry and you become disillusioned and then you, you become bitter. And, and I've seen this happen over and over again. I think of the story of Absalom in the Bible. Absalom was the son of David, you were perhaps remember. And Absalom... Although when we think of Absalom, generally we think of the negative aspects of his life where he undermined his father David, then he turned against David and he tried to overthrow him and take the kingdom and all of that, which was all true and it was all wrong, but it was preceded by something. It was preceded by the sin of David. You see, David sinned and that was obviously a stumbling block to Absalom. But then not only did David sin, when another of David's sons sinned, Amnon, against one of David's daughters, Tamar, by forcing her sexually, essentially raping her, David, who was morally impaired because of his own sin, was never able to deal with Amnon the way that he should have been dealt with. And Absalom saw all of this. And you know, as I looked at that story and as I've observed life in the Christian world, I became a little more understanding of Absalom as time went on. Because at a certain point, Absalom was right. 
He was right. David was wrong in so many ways, and he did so many things wrong, and he didn't do what needed to be done. And Absalom was right about those things, but here's what happened. He went wrong when he failed to trust God, and he tried to take things into his own hands. You see, he went wrong even though he was initially right. And that is something that we all have to realize. You can be right, you can be absolutely right, but you can be so right that you become wrong. And this happens when we refuse to let God deal with certain situations when we try to take it into our own hands, or when we become angry that it's not being dealt with the way we think it should be, and then we start slandering and gossiping and talking to other people about this injustice that's been done. And I'll tell you, when you, when you listen to a lot of the people that I was referring to earlier out in the culture who are now atheists or agnostics or whatever, you know, they've, they've got a story about some injustice that happened to them at church about some pastor who did them wrong in some way or another, or some Christian businessman ripped them off, or something happened like that, and their initial complaint is valid. Yes, that was wrong. And yes, it's true that it was never dealt with the way it should have been dealt with. That's all true. But it's not your place to deal with it. You see, this is where faith comes in. This is where we trust God. Years ago, some young guys that I knew in ministry, they were very stumbled by another pastor who was behaving very badly. And they were very idealistic and understandably. They thought, wait, no, pastor shouldn't behave like that. And they were right. But they almost stumbled because the pastor wasn't being dealt with by those who were over him. And they couldn't understand and they started to then become a little bit bitter. And they started to question, well, you know, where is the justice of God? And in this particular case, it turned out well because they pulled back and recognized, you know, at the end, it's God's problem, not ours, and we're gonna trust him. Uh, but not everybody does that. Bitterness, unforgiveness, and it can be toward anyone. How often is it a parent, uh, a relative, a friend, um, sometimes it's apparent toward a child. But the warning is to beware of it because a root of bitterness will cause trouble, serious trouble, and it will defile many. And so evidently that was an issue there. But then also he refers to fornication, lest there be a fornicator. Now Esau, he uses Esau as an example of a fornicator. Esau um, took the wives of the, of the uh, people of the land that were a grief. He married uh, two women, and so it seems that that's the reference there. But the, the idea here is that there's sexual immorality. So even among these Hebrews, apparently, there's some sexual immorality that is beginning to seep in. Again, because when you disconnect from God in your heart, eventually it's going to show itself in your behavior. And there's no limit to where that can go. But then he refers to Esau as a profane person. Now, a profane person 
is not what we might think when we first hear the term. We think of profane or profanity, vulgar. Uh, a profane person, the word means a person who has no regard for spiritual things. It's, it's just that simple. Esau was a person who didn't really care about the things of the spirit. He was more interested in the here and now. He was more interested in what uh, was, was pleasing and comfortable for him in this life. He didn't really think of the, the bigger picture. He didn't think of, uh, he didn't think with an eternal perspective. He thought just with the temporal uh, view of things. And so, as a result of that, for one morsel of food, he sold his birthright. His birthright was his spiritual inheritance. He didn't care about it. When he comes in from being out in the woods and he's tired and he's hungry and he asks his brother Jacob, he says, Make, give, me, give me some of that soup. And Jacob says, okay, I'll give it to you. I'll trade you. You give me your birthright, I'll give you the bowl of lentils. And Esau says, well, what's the, what's the birthright? I don't care about that. Give me the bowl of lentils. I'm starving. And he traded away his spiritual inheritance right there. And then, um, you know, as, as we follow the story there in Genesis, we see that uh, Esau, after he realized the consequences, then he was regretful of what he did, and he tried to get the decision reversed by his father, Isaac, but there was no reversing. And so that's why it says, for you know that afterward when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he rejected, uh, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance though he sought it diligently with tears. So there's a moment where Esau realizes that he's given up his blessing. Which the point is this, it wasn't that he cared about the blessing as much as he just cared about the personal loss. So if he could have given up the blessing and then had the uh, material abundance as well, it wouldn't have been a problem to him. But the, but the blessing represented the material abundance. And so now he's regretting that he's lost the things that are going to make for a comfortable life. But he traded his spiritual inheritance for momentary comfort. And that's exactly what the author is warning them over and over not to do. Don't trade your eternal inheritance for temporary comfort. That was their big temptation. That's what's happening to them. That is a temptation that we all face today. As we go on in life, and as we face troubles and challenges and difficulties, there's the temptation to just, you know, let, let's just settle down. Let's just be comfortable here. Let's not be so spiritual that it costs us something and sends us into a place of uh, alienation or, you know, something that's going to result in our uh, personal discomfort. That's what Esau did. And he says, let none of you be like that. Putting the material, putting the, the temporal over the spiritual 
and over the eternal. So these are the things that we're warned about. But what is the remedy to this? The remedy is back in verse 14. And so I want to come back to the issue of holiness and I want to finish up by looking at this because this is, this is the remedy to all of these things. And he says, pursue holiness. And both things are vital. The word pursue is important to understand and holiness is important to understand. So when we talk about holiness, what are we talking about? Well, we're, we're talking about, like I said earlier, you can't connect holiness from God. We're talking about the pursuit of God. So the, the remedy, the solution to spiritual lameness that results from a hardened heart, that results from disobedience, the remedy to that is the pursuit of God. As we pursue God, as we seek God, as we... Uh, give ourselves diligently to following after him. You know, A.W. Tozer wrote a book years ago. It's a very, it's a classic. Uh, the book is called The Pursuit of God. And the, the, the scripture that became kind of the, the basis for the, the book itself was as the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for thee, O God, the living God. So the picture is of a deer that's you know, running through the forest in search of that, that brook, in search of that refreshment, and, and panting, you know, just thinking about that moment when that refreshment will come, that's the idea. The pursuit of God. That's what it means to pursue holiness. So holiness is probably one of the most misunderstood uh, ideas in the history of the church. Holiness has been greatly misunderstood many times over. Like I already said, the Pharisees obviously misunderstood what it was. They thought they were holy. And the people around them thought they were holy, but they were anything but holy. So here's the question. What is holiness? And I want to quote to you from J.I. Packer from his book, uh, Knowing God. And he used the term gospel holiness. He said it was Puritan shorthand for authentic Christian living, springing from love and gratitude to God. Listen, in contrast with the spurious legal holiness that consisted merely of forms, routines, and outward appearances maintained from self-regarding motives. See, far too often in history, that's what holiness has been interpreted to be. Merely forms, routines, outward appearances maintained from self-regarding motives. Not doing it for God, doing it for myself to give myself some kind of advantage and not doing it sincerely from the heart, but 
doing it merely in an external fashion. So gospel holiness is not that. Gospel holiness, he goes on to say, is simply a consistent living out of our relationship with God into which the gospel brings us. It is just a matter of the child of God being true to type, true to his father, true to his savior, true to his or her true identity as a child of God. So what is holiness? Let me make this clear because last service, I obviously didn't make it clear because somebody said at the end, okay, what was holiness again? So, (laughs) So here it is. Holiness, and he was right. I didn't make it clear last service. Um, Holiness is the outworking of the divine nature that we have received through faith in Christ. Through faith in Christ, we become the children of God. And now holiness is just the, the outworking of that life of God that's been put in us through the Holy Spirit. So pursue holiness as we pursue God, as we seek him, as we grow more in our relationship with him, that is going to show itself through our lives. And notice what he says. He says, for without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Pursue holiness, for without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, I think there are three possible ways to understand what he's saying there. And I think all three of them are actually true. Without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. First of all, and in the context, I think what he's saying is that, you know, without holiness, which is the result of a genuine relationship with God, you're not going to see him in the, in the end. You're, in other words, he's telling them you're, you're coming short of of the grace of God. You're you're coming short of that salvation. If there's no pursuit of holiness in your life, then it's evident that there's no real relationship with God. And of course, if there's no real relationship with God, you'll never see the Lord in the end because only, you know, the pure in heart will see God. And we know that the pure in heart are not pure in heart because their hearts are more pure than somebody else's. Naturally, the pure in heart, their hearts are made pure by the grace of God. So that's the first application. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. To put it in the simplest terms, no one will make it to heaven, to God's presence. But there's another sense also that I think there is application here. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord in the sense of witness. How do people see God in the world today? How's anybody gonna see God? How's anybody gonna become aware of the fact that there really is a God. You know, one of the major ways is through our lives. That's one of the primary ways people come to know the Lord. They see God in the life of somebody else and it's attractive to them. It says something to them. It speaks to them. There's something different that they recognize. But you see, without holiness there's nothing different to recognize. Without holiness, without that life of God really manifesting itself through us, then we look just like everybody else. Now, in one sense, we do look like everybody else, and we should look like everybody else. 
You know, oftentimes uh, when I travel, especially in Europe, I see um, whether they're Anglican priests or occasionally I'll see Catholic priests. You know, I'll see, you know, those clergymen who are going about with their, their collars and all of that. And I, I look at that and I think, you know, it was a sad day when we had to have some external means of identifying uh, our spirituality. You see, because God intends that that identity come through our life. Not because I've got a, a particular uniform on, not because I have a, a certain collar, but because I have uh, the love of Jesus being manifested through my life. I have his compassion and his mercy and his grace, and I'm living according to those things that please God. And when we do that as God's people, which we will do as we pursue the Lord, as we pursue holiness, then guess what? Others will see the Lord. If we don't do it, they won't see the Lord. We won't, we won't be any uh, indicator to them whatsoever that there, there actually is a God. You know, sometimes, sadly, people look at Christians and think, man, if there is a God, I don't want to know him because this person is really annoying. It's true. And, and so we have to make sure that we're not being like that. But, but we will if we pursue holiness in the sense that we're talking about here. If we're pursuing the Lord truly, if we're seeking him diligently, then that's going to work itself out in our witness. But here's the third and the final way. We will see the Lord at work in and through our lives. I want to ask you this question. Do you see the Lord at work in your life? Some people say, well, you know, I don't see the Lord doing anything. Well, that's an indictment against yourself. What that says is you're not pursuing holiness. Because if you did pursue holiness, you would see the Lord. You would see that he's at work. You would see his hand in a million different things. You know, that's the way we as Christians ought to be viewing the world. We ought to be the ones who are seeing the work of God. We're seeing the hand of God. Even in the things that happen in our world today, the crazy things, to see behind a lot of the stuff, you know, God is still at work. I, I wanted to show a, a photo that I got this morning on, it was a Instagram from Sarah Yardley, and some of you remember Sarah. Uh, she's basically, you know, our missionary in the UK right now. She uh, is the director of Creation Fest, which is a festival you know that we do every August, but it's a year-long ministry, and she's there doing that. But one of the things that our Creation Fest team has done is they've joined up with some local Christians in the Cornwall area, and they've taken all of these supplies across the channel to France, and they're ministering to the refugees, and there, one of the pictures she posted this morning was so precious. She's with a family, it looked like six or so, who escaped from Iraq, who have been months and months, you know, in their journey. They're living in a little one-room thing, and there she's standing with them, and, you know, something, the caption there was something about, you know, experiencing the love of Jesus. And, you know, I look at that, and I think, you know, that's, God's at work. 
There's all this debate in our culture about refugees and what should we do with them? And, oh, we should, you know, probably keep them out because there's going to be terrorists. Or, no, no, we ought to let everybody in and we shouldn't worry about that. And, you know, there, there's all this debate going on and whatever you feel about that, you know, that's fine. That's between you and the Lord. But let's see the Lord in these things. And if you're pursuing God, if you're seeking him, guess what? you're going to see the Lord, that he is at work. He's at work in you, and he's at work through you, and he's at work in a million other situations. And so in closing, let me just reemphasize one final time this word pursue. That's what it's all about. It's about pursuing the Lord. It's about seeking him. It's about... uh, you know, not being distracted, laying aside every weight in the sin that so easily ensnares us. We've already looked at those things, but that's what we're talking about. You know, to pursue something is to, is to chase after it, to run after it, to, as some of my friends who, you know, like to grapple and fight and wrestle and all of that, they say, you know, we're going to get after it. And, and that's the idea. We're going to get after it. As God's people, we need to be getting after, not it, we need to be getting after him, pursuing him, seeking him. You know, we're coming to another conclusion of a year. Amazing, astounding how quickly time is flying. But you know, as we come to the conclusion of a year, we might look back and we might think, you know, I haven't really progressed too much this year. I haven't really made any real advances spiritually. I've I've kind of stagnated. I'm kind of floundering. Well, you know what? Here's the great news. You can always turn that around. You can begin fresh today your pursuit of God. That pursuit of holiness as it's stated here. And when you do that, you will see the Lord. Others will see the Lord in you, and you will see the Lord for sure. You'll have the confidence, the assurance, the guarantee that yes, one day I will see the Lord because my relationship with him is real. It's not mere outward form. It's real, it's vital, it's life-giving, and that gives me rest as I think about the future. So Lord, help us to pursue holiness. Help us to pursue you. And Lord, wherever we're at today, maybe as we look at this passage, maybe we find ourselves with all kinds of bitterness and our lives are marked by division and unforgiveness and these things. Lord, we thank you that even today, as we confess to you, we thank you that you will forgive us and you'll help us to forgive others and move forward. Lord, even if we find ourselves today in sin, sexual sin, we thank you that your mercy is new and you'll forgive us and you'll give us strength to move forward. Lord, even if our hearts have become dull and we just seem lately to be more interested in the material and in the present than in the 
spiritual and the eternal. Lord, thank you that you change the heart. Lord, we don't want to be in the end like Esau, who disregarded the things of the Spirit. But Lord, we want to be like those who throughout history have pursued you with a relentless pursuit. So help us to do that today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.